The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is true that the people doing the work, you know, may come from visual arts backgrounds or they may come from filmmaking and, you know, their entire education was around aesthetic questions. So I don't think you can remove that completely from the equation, but I think for us, it's it's remaining absolutely clear on the destination being uh, the courtroom and in the service of addressing the facts of the case in that context. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 1st, 2023. In last month's landmark settlement, the city of New York agreed to pay over $13 million to a group of 1,380 protesters who were arrested and are subjected to force by NYPD officers in Manhattan and Brooklyn in the summer of 2020. The proposed settlement marks the largest total payout to protesters in a class action suit in the United States, according to Akella Lacey at The Intercept. The plaintiffs won the case, at least in part, thanks to the work of Situ Research, a group that conducts visual investigations and, quote, merges data and design to create new pathways for justice, according to their website. Situ Research's work supports activists, advocates, and lawyers, bridging the gap between digital evidence and the communities that can best deploy them towards justice and accountability. I sat down with Brad Samuels, a founding partner at Situ, who has overseen the team's visual investigations for legal and advocacy organizations, including the International Criminal Court, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the United Nations, and and many others. We discussed why forensic reconstructions and other visual investigations are so useful in the pursuit of justice for war crimes and other abuses, how Samuels and his colleagues build them, and some of the pushback they get. We also talked about the thorny new questions these new technologies raise, including the dangers of re-traumatizing victims. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 1st, bringing digital evidence into the courtroom. So Brad, I want to start with a bit of a scene-setting question. I would love if you could first just describe uh, what Citra Research is, uh, what you do there, and if you could break down some of these terms that are used uh, in this world for our listeners. You know, what is a visual investigation, for example? What is a forensic recreation? If you could just give us a lay of the land to start us off. Sure. Well, we describe uh, C2 Research's practice as merging data and design to create new pathways for justice. I would say that we sort of occupy the space, the spaces between law, uh, advocacy, and journalism. But whether we're working in you know, any of those domains, uh, the kind of through line is that we're trying to innovate around new methods and tools and techniques for fact-finding and reporting, usually in relation to human rights violations. 
In terms of visual investigations, this is a, I, I would say it's it's a nascent field, which it maybe is like in its adolescent period, perhaps it's becoming more mature, but it was more speculative, let's say five or 10 years ago. Uh, it generally describes a type of investigation which uh, leverages a whole range of different types of media and assets. And, and it's nominally visual, but it also would, could include audio and other types of data formats as well. But the the, the idea is to really kind of, if we can say that textual uh, reporting has long been the norm for how we communicate findings, visual investigations is a, is a good effort to synthesize different types of video, diagrams, 3D models, uh, geospatial information, all together to kind of produce a report kind of greater than the sum of its parts. We, we found that, you know, Reporting was often done textually, and things that were being described um, were often visual or spatial in nature, and it, it just made much more sense to us to to use the native formats to come to some of the same you know uh, findings and also to open up new questions. And it's it's a sort of because it's a an emerging field, it's been helpful to have you know a term emerge that we can all kind of different institutions, different organizations can coalesce around in terms of what we do. A reconstruction or forensic reconstruction is simply an effort to sort of create a coherent and clear account, uh, usually of a contested event. So uh, the reconstruction could be in 3D, three dimensions. It could be in two dimensions. It could be about becoming very clear on a sequence of events, which are only um, captured in audio. But generally speaking, um, regardless of the format that it takes, it's an effort to be as precise as possible about what we know in terms of understanding an event, which may have you know different narratives and different sort of noise, let's say, around it. And so there's all different types of tools and, and methods that can be leveraged to try and address that question. Yeah, and I'd love to make this tangible or real for the listeners. So I know C2 Research has been involved in a number of really fascinating cases uh, and, and investigations, but maybe if we could take one of the more recent uh, headline-grabbing uh, investigations, and that was the recent uh, quite large NYPD payout to protesters who uh, sustained police abuses, uh, especially in the 2020 uh, protests after the, the murder of George Floyd. Could you walk me through a bit about the history of of that summer of the investigations you were you were taking part in, um, how you recreated that for a courtroom? Uh, you know what what kind of inputs, basically how you how you took on uh, such a such a sprawling investigation like that? Sure, yeah, I'd say you know, like many other investigations that we've been working on, specifically around um, suppression of dissent or protests in urban areas there is almost a deluge of video. It seems like with each new case, there's more and more and more video, more more to, more to data to structure, more videos to watch, and to the point where it almost becomes prohibitively time-consuming to even you know, organize the information, let alone trying to find something that's relevant to an investigative priority. And that was definitely the case with the George Floyd protests in, all over the U.S., um, and certainly in New York, there was a tremendous amount of video documentation. Our, the first sort of point of entry for us was 
analyzing video uh, in a project with Human Rights Watch, which we did together on something called a kettle, which is a, a tactic uh, that was you know, employed by the NYPD to encircle protesters and basically trap them, limiting their ability to escape. And then in, in this particular case that we looked at in the Bronx, uh, conduct mass arrests, basically. And the reason why the reconstruction was important in that case was because there's there's no shortage of video. There's a lot of video, but it's, you know, handheld phones. It's very shaky. It's a very sort of violent situation. And you don't get the full context in any one piece of video, but there's multiple videos that capture the same moments in time. And so the project was really about first syncing up video footage that are capturing the same moment from different vantage points. So it might be on one side of the, you know, outside of the police kettle, someone's taking video within the p- police kettle. Someone's taking a different video from an upper floor of an adjacent apartment building. Someone's looking down and taking another video and so on. And by syncing the video footage, you can start to get a better picture um, of what happened. And I think in that case, you know, th- there, there was assertions being made by the mayor and the chief of police the following day that the protesters were violent and that they had only enforced the kettle after, after curfew. It, it turns out neither of those were true. And that was only, only became apparent when taking a hard look at all, of, not one piece of footage, but all of it together. And then the last thing I'll say about that is kettling is a tactic which is used to sort of prevent egress or prevent exit, but it can't really be understood abstractly. It needs to be looked at in relation to the built environment, the city. So in that case, the prote- they had waited, the, the NYPD had waited very strategically till protesters had gotten to a certain point along a street and then enforced the kettle at the end of the road. So police in the front, police in the back, but there were buildings on either side. So it wasn't just the kind of law enforcement themselves encircling the police. It was a combination of law enforcement tactic with the built environment together. And that's where the 3D model really helps you uh, gain that perspective. So that was the first case we worked on in terms of the BLM protests in New York City, but we subsequently sort of applied that same strategy to class action lawsuit that was um, brought on behalf of protesters for every other protest that occurred during that same period of time, May 28th to like June 4th in 2020. So so if there, if there was like 800 videos for the Mott Haven case, that that went up to like 6,300 videos for the entire city and a slightly different investigative question, which was, can we, because it was about a class action lawsuit, can we, can we demonstrate that there was widespread and systemic uh, misconduct? And so we were looking at not just one case, but different types of misconduct as they appear in different parts of the city over many different days. And that was, a tremendous amount of video to go through and post its own challenges, but was very useful ultimately in sort of demonstrating the investigative priorities of the of the lawsuit, which ultimately was settled and did not go to court. I want to sit with that challenge for just a bit. How do you sort through this vast amount of evidence, uh, not only piecing together the sequence of events? Uh, I imagine a lot of the videos come without uh, metadata, and so you know, geolocating it, placing it on a timeline verifying that you know these are real videos from from uh, victims or, or demonstrators how do you tackle such an immense challenge yeah it's a really good question well i will maybe start at the end and say that we only got you know 
a fraction, a very small fraction of the way through the 6300. It, it takes a lot of time. And it's an interesting time to be kind of reflecting on this with the introduction of massive leaps in you know, machine learning and computer vision over the past few months, because I think it's going to change and become a more efficient process uh, in the near future. But for now, the first step is to try and determine where and when a video was taken. And sometimes you have metadata, sometimes you don't. But even when you do, the metadata is never authoritative. You know, the metadata can be wrong. So that, that at best is a kind of starting point. It also depends on the context in which you're working. You know, we've been doing a lot of work on suppression of dissent in other parts of the world, you know, in Ukraine and Nicaragua and Iraq before 2020, and then pivoted very hard after the murder of George Floyd to focus our efforts domestically. Because we are doing the work in New York and we're based in New York, we know the city very well. And so the geolocation becomes a lot more straightforward. Doing work somewhere very far away from we live, where we live is a whole different matter and requires very close collaboration with partners on the ground. But in the case of New York City, it's time consuming, but, you know, it was pretty clear where footage was taken. And then, you know, the question of where and when, and in terms of the protests, there were different protests happening on different days in different parts of the city. And so uh, those two things build on each other. And um, the goal is to get as much chronolocated or, you know, figuring out when as, as geolocated or, or, or where. In one of the interesting things that did happen with the class action lawsuit in New York City for the BLM protests was that we got a lot of body cam footage. And the body cam footage, had, and we had also had aerial surveillance footage that was all um, gathered during the discovery process. That all had timestamps on it. Again, not to be sort of authoritative it needs to be kind of corroborated in other means but it's a good place to start and so we did develop a kind of tool or a kind of a script to scrape all of the timestamps and begin to populate a spreadsheet so that we could automate the process of figuring out the when and then based on when a protest happened we could start to narrow down where it was and so on yeah i i, I think one thing that leaps out when you start to look into some of C2's investigations and the cases they've been involved in are a lot of superlatives or firsts. So, for example, in the The, the Intercept reported that this latest uh, settlement is the largest protester settlement ever for abuses committed by at least U.S. police or, or perhaps the NYPD. Uh, there was a, a case in, in Timbuktu that uh, went to the ICC and it was uh, resulted in the first person tried for the destruction of cultural heritage and also uh, the first to plead guilty before the tribunal that was reported and wired. So I do want to address later on, you know, some of the limitations and, and caveat by saying that these technologies are not a panacea. But uh, first, I want to talk about, you know, why you think the the use of uh, visual investigations and recreations are so compelling and, and do result in some uh, landmark settlements or, or verdicts. Why are these new technologies seemingly so effective? Well, I think there's two ways I would address that. One is that the documentation of these violations is all often happening in visual registers, you know, increasingly so, right? Whether that's user-generated content or citizen um, video, or it's body cam footage, or it's surveillance footage, it's, it's visual in nature. And so, as I mentioned before, you know, it's rarely ever one video that tells the whole story you know it's usually a combination of different videos that get you closer to understanding 
the facts of an event. And I think for that reason, these tools are proving themselves very effective. You know, in, in the case in Mali for the International Criminal Court, it was very helpful to see, for example, you know, this was a destruction of cultural heritage case. So what did the shrines look like before they were destroyed? There was actually documentation of them being destroyed, like in the process of being destroyed. And then what did they look like after destruction? And this, you know, documentation existed for, I think, 13 shrines around the city of Timbuktu. So, you know, it would be one thing to look at all of that material in isolation, but to be able to put it together in a platform and for the attorneys to be able to, to kind of move around the city and take the judges and the defense through an argument, I think was very effective in that case. Similarly, with the work on suppression of dissent, I think there the, there's often a narrative, irrespective of where in the world you're doing this work, that protests, civil unrest, is, is the situations just get too complicated. You know, they're just too complex to understand. You know, it's too chaotic. That is a very convenient narrative for people who are not interested in accountability. Uh, I think what we're trying to demonstrate, and hopefully what some of this recent work shows, is that they are complicated events, even chaotic, but through careful analysis and visual analysis, you can often create a baseline understanding of the use of force, for example, or what led up to the moments that the use of force um, occurred. It, it takes the sort of complexity, it, it takes the it's too complex narrative off the table and creates a point of entry for beginning to try and answer certain questions. That's proven to be useful in a number of different cases recently. I'm also curious about the scale of resources needed to create something like the uh, digital platform in the Mali case, for example. Um, are these expensive technologies? Do they require a lot of manpower? And and how might it compare, perhaps, I don't know, to armies of associates uh, trying to conduct similar research or, or present similar evidence without the aid of visual technologies, for example? I mean, it, it's certainly a lot of labor and it, it takes time. But I think what's salient here is that the profile of who's doing the work is changing a bit, I would say, in terms of investigations. I mean, the people working on the Mali case have computer science backgrounds and design backgrounds, um, which are not necessarily traditional forensic certification or investigative you know, backgrounds. And that's a whole other thing we can talk about, which is this question of expertise and, and how to square that with, you know, um, providing testimony and being a witness, et cetera. But people coming out of architecture schools, out of film schools, out of CS programs, they have skill sets that are proving to be very, very useful for the direction um, a lot of this work is going. And I think it's changing a bit the kind of landscape and who's being hired to work in newsrooms and uh, advocacy organizations and and even in legal contexts. So I think, yes, it's, it's a lot of work. It takes time, but it's not that the software or the tools are, you know, out of reach. The bar is so high in terms of cost. It's, it's more about understanding that the people doing the work and that their, their, their training and skill sets that they're bringing are perhaps a bit different than the traditional ones. In addition to maybe the resource question and, and, sifting through immense amounts of evidence, what other challenges do you face uh, when embarking on a visual investigation or have historically faced? Um, I'm thinking perhaps 
you know, with these new types of people and new um, new backgrounds coming into the criminal justice or international justice space, uh, perhaps a reticence to accept new technologies in the courtroom. Um, so I don't know, just kind of a, a more broad question of, of the kinds of challenges that you face and have faced over the past number of years that you've been engaged in this work. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And I, each of these domains that we're sort of moving between in law and advocacy and journalism, they, they function at different speeds. I would say journalism being usually the fastest, right? And maybe law at the other end of the spectrum. I think in the beginning, you know, there was there was reticence to introducing new tools and technologies and new forms of expertise um, within the legal domain, particularly at the ICC. And I'm talking like 10 years ago before the before we even started work there, because it was very much an unknown and it, it's a tough place to experiment. You know, the the cost of failure is very high and you can do a lot of damage. And I think that there was a, an appropriate level of, you know, it's appropriately conservative in terms of approaching, you know, new tools and methods. And so I would say that the ambitions were tempered in the model, in the first case we did with the ICC. Let's not try and do everything we can do. Let's just make a platform where we can better present images, photographs, satellite images, 360 panoramic images, you know, basically just presentation. And so we did that. It was, I think, by all accounts, effective. Everyone kind of agreed on its effectiveness at the end, and that set a precedent. And as we know, in law, precedent is is a big deal. And that that meant that the next case that we were able to work on, um, which is the Al-Hassan case, was a lot more ambitious in terms of what we sought to do. And so I think it's it's a more incremental sort of progress in in legal context in which we've worked. But as we set precedent and demonstrate the utility and the ability to kind of stand behind the work and and talk about how it's made, there there's more and more appetite and willingness, I'd say, to to do new things. In the journalistic realm at the other end of the spectrum, I think it's super interesting to see how like the visual investigations team at the New York Times, for example, is just doing, you know, remarkable work time and again on really urgent global questions, right, in cases. And I think that is, those two things are kind of pulling at opposite ends of the sort of same question. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And just to get the listeners up to speed, could you walk us through the Al-Hassan case, also in Mali, but distinct, I believe, from the cultural heritage case that C2 also worked on? Yeah, it was distinct also in Mali, but it was um, 
al-Hassan was the de facto uh, head of the Islamic police, alleged head of the Islamic police in 2012 and 2013, and is being um, is on trial at the moment. The verdict should be issued soon uh, and being charged with a host of different things, um, gender-based violence, and in addition to destruction of cultural heritage. Um, the ask was very different of us in this case um, from the first one. In this case, and I, like I said, it was a more ambitious, there's a bigger appetite to do something more ambitious this time, but it was basically, could we could we build a, a model or a digital twin of the city of Timbuktu? And because the prosecution was looking at um, alleged crimes that were committed across the city on different days, they wanted the ability to kind of move through the urban environment virtually and then pull up important evidentiary assets as they related to, let's say, the headquarters of the Islamic police, which was housed in a, in a bank building, or, you know, photographs of uh, Sharia law being carried out um, in an open square or something like this in a different part of the city. And so the, the underlying evidence was photographs and videos, and um, but to be able to place them in space and to be able to understand them in relation to each other geographically and temporally, once again, time and space is kind of fundamental here, and to move around the city um, was the mandate. So we were asked to build this digital model and then to place the evidence uh, of these key sites within that digital model and to do it in an interactive format. And I think this is an important and interesting detail um, but basically, by interactive, I mean, you can query it, you know, you can click on different parts of the city, you can click on the names of different parts of the city or the map, and then you can pull up information as you like. It's not a linear work product like a video would be, for example. And I think that's important because we can provide it without over-determining how it will be used in court. It might be used by the prosecution in one way, the judges might use the tool in a different way and the defense, you know, differently still. So that's how it was used. It was, it was used to, pre to present the case. And um, as I said, we're, the arguments have been closed and they're waiting on a verdict. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to raise. I, you know, I think there can be a misconception that this is just a tool for the prosecution. Uh, for example, in, in, you know, improving that a certain crime or abuse was committed and I also brought up the Al-Hassan case because uh, Alice Spiri, in, in her article in The Intercept, recent article talking about the Al-Hassan case, she um, cited an email that Al-Hassan's defense team had submitted to the court uh, in which they described this seeing is believing tendency. So, so they write in the email that um, there's, there, there's research that, that says that there's an undue reliance that the viewer may place on the evidence presented through a visualization medium uh, that's often reserved to seeing is believing. So I want to use that as a way to open up some of the, the thornier ethical, legal, uh, and other questions that, that these new technologies raise. Um, so first up, I'm curious your thoughts on this quote unquote, seeing as believing tendency, and then, you know, maybe other um, ethical or, or legal issues that, uh, that have come up for you. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. The work is definitely seductive visually. And I, I think we need to be very aware and responsible for that reality. I mean, on the one hand, it is, you know, very compelling visually and, and seductive in that way. On the other hand, the underlying assets are visual. So for me, the, the answer to the question is increased visual literacy, I would say, 
um, all around for the judges, you know, to get used to using and, and sort of looking at evidence in this way for the, for the defense, for the prosecution. I think there is a, a threshold we cross um, potentially when using tools with witnesses, especially, you know, the potential to re-traumatize witnesses. You know, some of this, some of the work in this field is moving into VR, virtual reality and augmented reality, which is a very powerful, immersive way to kind of be present, right, in a space or to to be virtually present in a space. But it it's led to some interesting conversations, really valid conversations about not inadvertently re-traumatizing um, witnesses or, you know, victims that have been through really awful events and bringing them back to that, that, that moment in time. So I think, you know, the, the power of the tools is, 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 is very clear and it is clear that they can be, you know, strong and evocative and um, need to be wielded responsibly. But I, I do disagree with the argument that they should be de facto sort of, you know, not allowed to be used because they're too convincing. I think if the if the underlying evidence is visual evidence, we should be able to find a way to present it and um, synthesize it so that we have we can make we can we can do the best job at kind of getting to the facts, right? I think the way to address some of this transition in a moment where people are kind of moving from what has been dominated by text to things which are, you know, maybe more evenly distributed by text between text and visual information is, like I said, increased literacy and comfort um, and criticality. You know, you we need to give people the tools to be critical of these, uh, of the visual formats in which things are being presented. Um, and I, I do think, you know, in the ICC's case, it was, we were working with the office of the prosecutor, but I'm, I'm very keen to also work with the defense and to make sure that, people feel like they have, you know, equal access to these tools and it's not an arms race in terms of, you know, who can afford to em employ them in, in proceedings. That, that that remains important to us and something which I think needs to be leveled out. Yeah, they're, they're great points. And given these, some of these concerns you raised in terms of re-traumatizing victims or, or perhaps a lack of visual literacy, um, sometimes on, on the, rece the receiving end, are there any more best practices or principles that guide your work? Um, I'm thinking not just for C2 research, but also across the community, maybe even broader in the open source intelligence community. I'm thinking specifically maybe of the recent Berkeley protocol um, that was developed. Uh, but do you see a sort of standardization happening across you know, C2 and, and the wider community that, that does similar work? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, I think there's two, two things that are happening that have been very helpful for us and I think for others in this community. I mean, certainly the Berkeley Protocol provided a kind of uh, a standardization of some of the best practices for uh, verifying user-generated content and open source information. And, you know, certainly I'm sure it can be improved and we can, there might be a 2.0 or a 3.0 version of it, but just having a baseline that, you know, we can agree upon is the best practice is already massively helpful so that not everybody is doing it a different way. Um, and I think that it, it introduces a degree of sort of formalization in a field that's been a little bit like the Wild West, which I think is, is, is definitely been a positive, it's had a positive effect and is also giving people 
points of entry into like you know, new lines of work. You know, there's a whole population of people who would like, you know, who are doing this work more informally and on their own time, but, you know, would like to do it professionally. And things like the Berkeley Protocol, I think, provide a structure and point of entry for how these skill sets can be applied. Again, whether it's a newsroom or it's an advocacy organization or you're working at a court. So I think that's things like that are very useful. And, and but I, I do see them as living documents. In, in other words, like to be revisited and updated because it is, it needs to be recognized that it's a nascent, nascent field. The other, which is a very big deal and, and not limited to visual investigations is vicarious trauma, being intentional about the amount of exposure um, people doing this line of work um, have with violent content, uh, repeated exposure. I mean, the, the content moderators at, at YouTube, for example, you know, that's, that's a, an example of, a, you know, an adjacent field where you have a lot of the same issues, right? And there's been important work done by a few different folks, Sam Dubberly, uh, who's now at Human Rights Watch, and the folks at Berkeley as well, on how to, you know, minimize harm for those who are, you know, viewing this footage over and over and over again, and in preparation for its use again in, in, in these different contexts. And I think that's best practices around that, and even, you know, destigmatizing some of this uh, experience and opening it up to making it okay to talk about it with your colleagues and that it's difficult to watch sometimes has made this work, I think, more doable and healthier in a certain way. I want to briefly go back to one thing you mentioned about this seduction of the visual media or the medium that you're using. One thing I certainly noticed, I think anyone will notice when they're first uh, experiencing these visual investigations by C2, by forensic architecture, um, even the, you know, even the mainstream outlets like the New York Times who have visual investigations teams is just is that many of them are are quite visually striking and even beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, even if they are depicting really heinous um, things. So I would love to hear a bit more of your thoughts on how aesthetics plays a role, and you know, almost a beautiful presentation, very you know, sort of clean models and diagrams. How how this how aesthetics play a role essentially. Yeah, no, it's a it's a important question, and I think it's something we think about a lot. And I mean, for us, it's about maintaining clarity about who the work is for and why we're doing it. In other words, our goal is not to make anything beautiful; it's to make something clear. The byproduct might be that it is aesthetically pleasing or beautiful or seductive, but that's it's just that it's 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 not it's a byproduct and not the intention, and. I think it can be problematic when, you know, work has multiple destinations, you know, for example, it's going to be in court, but it's also going to be used in an exhibition at a museum. Like it is, it is true that the people doing the work, you know, may come from visual arts backgrounds or they may come from filmmaking and, you know, their entire education was around aesthetic questions. So I don't think you can remove that completely from the equation, but I think for us, it's, it's, remaining absolutely clear on the destination being, you know, not, not the museum as a first destination or not the exhibition or not some place where the kind of aesthetic questions are foregrounded, but rather uh, the courtroom and in the service of addressing the facts of the case in that context. And that may mean, you know, for example, getting extremely familiar with the IT setup in a given courtroom 
um, which sounds very technical and, and sort of banal, but is has everything to do with what something looks like at the end of the day, because, you know, different courtrooms in different jurisdictions, some might have monitors at every desk, some might have one monitor on the, you know, 100 feet away. We need to understand those constraints in terms of the ability to perceive and convey information clearly so that we can create something that can be read and understood in those contexts effectively. It's not to say that things, you know, these do absolutely have aesthetic qualities. I'm not saying that they don't. And they do, I think it is actually very interesting and and generative when these work products end up in in very different contexts, like perhaps in a museum or in a, a film or something like this. But that's always for us a second destination and not, not the first. And it's important to keep those priorities in mind. But I think the conversations that happen at those second destinations are very interesting to track and, and be part of because the perspectives are radically different in a room of artists and philosophers than they would be for a team of lawyers uh, and human rights practitioners. Yeah, I should say that the first thing I think that struck me is, is you know, just how visually stunning some of these things are or striking. And the second thing is, <laughs> I think what you've touched on many times in this conversation is just how... I think by necessity, uh, multidisciplinary it is. I want to, though, turn to um, some of the limitations of this technology, uh, these technologies, these investigations. We've spoken about some of the remarkable things that visual investigations can accomplish and, and, and are you know, poised to perhaps accelerate, as you spoke up about at the top of the conversation with um, you know, rapid advancements in machine learning and, and AI. But what are the current limitations, you know, either in the courtroom, you mentioned, you know, IT setups in certain courtrooms with these sort of banal uh, roadblocks that you may hit. Um, but also, you know, even in, in a connected world, there are areas of, of blackouts. So, you know, if, if a crime occurs somewhere with no smartphones, no satellite imagery, how do you, how do you address those kinds of challenges and, and limitations? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the first question that we need to ask ourselves, which is, you know, there may be an investigative priority. There may be an event of interest, but the first question is like, what is what are the assets and what does the documentation look like? And you're right. I mean, sometimes it's in a very uh, documentation poor, or sparse environment, and there's there's very little that can be done. And and we often are turning away work because we just can't provide anything useful. Um, so it's it's none of this is a panacea will change that basic fact, which is that, you know, the data needs to be there to work with in order to actually spend time with it and to see if it's going to be useful. I think one thing that I'm tracking right now, which I think is going to be interesting and scary, is the role of generative AI in our understanding of the representations of the world around us. Um, It is tremendously powerful tool, as we all know, in, in many different ways. But one of those ways is in describing, you know, cities, for example, um, 3D environments. And until recently, I think we had a much, we, we had a pretty good handle on the various ways in which you can capture information in urban environments. What is going to be important to track is the inflection point between existing modes of capture and the way, you know, large language models can fill in the gaps, so to speak, because you can always work backwards and sort of understand, okay, this was captured using a laser scan, or this was captured using photogrammetry or a photograph. But once you get into the realm of sort of 
filling in the areas that have not yet been captured using, you know, understood equipment, then you're in the realm of training sets. And it's a, it's a, it's, it strikes me as very slippery, slippery uh, area. And one in which all of us who are interested in sort of fact finding reporting, are going to have to keep a very close eye on. And it, I think it also, not only is it going to be important to kind of understand where that, where that line exists, but also it provides a lot of my other fears that it provides a lot of cover and sort of plausible deniability for those who are constantly interested in throwing doubt on the veracity and authenticity of different different types of data, whether they're photographs or digital models or you know, or other things. So I think that's something that I'm keeping an eye on and quite interested in. Uh, you also sit on the the technology advisory board um, for the ICC, and I was recently also reading in in Leche Spears' article about how the ICC's prosecutor's office launched a, a very ambitious sort of technical modernization initiative, including a new evidence management platform. So, um, I guess all this is to say, what else are you keeping an eye on? Where do you see? Uh, how do you see this field evolving? Um, the use of these tools in the courtroom or or outside? You know, in in other. I guess, more straightforward journalistic senses. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a organizational model that I'm, that I'm quite interested in, um, which is to say, like at the beginning, we talked about how law, uh, how, how journalism often moves very fast, right? It's a blistering pace of the news cycle and law um, often at the other end of the spectrum slower. I think the nature of this work is, requires a high degree of agility and it's highly interdisciplinary work. So no one project is going to look like any other project. Things are always changing and you have to be comfort comfortable with that level of agility and, and, and speed to some extent. So I guess I'm interested in places like the ICC or large human, you know, human rights organizations. How are large organizations with large bureaucratic structure is going to be able to integrate a lot of the tools and, and more than tools, methods that are constantly evolving. And I think the ICC is doing a version of it there that the chief prosecutor, Kareem Khan, is certainly very interested in engaging in, in, in a pretty strong way with uh, different types of technologies. But it'll be interesting to see how to marry the ability to be agile um, and nimble with the realities of both law and bureaucracy. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, watching the visual investigations team at the New York Times, you know, go from one, two, three, and I don't know, maybe there are 20 people now, it's just been amazing. And that, when you look at the constitution of that team, it's all different types of skill sets. This is not, you can't be, they can't be described as a video team. They're not just a graphics team. It's something, you know, really distinct and novel about what's happening there. And it's just taking a different form at the New York Times than it is at the ICC. And, you know, other organizations like Human Rights Watch will have their version of these visual investigations teams. So I think I think it's sort of coming into its own as, as a field of practice. And it's looking a little bit different in each of each of the contexts in which I've been describing. And that, that feels appropriate. The needs are a bit different in each case. Well, with a lot of things to keep an eye on uh, in the future in this field, which uh, sort of, as you mentioned, in its adolescence, uh, maybe getting past its awkward teenage years, uh, so to speak. I want to thank you very much, Brad Samuels, for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's uh, awkward adolescence is spot on. Yeah, this was an interesting conversation. So thank you.
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.